right, good morning. The scripture for today is Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We're beginning a new series this week, and we'll be, we'll be moving through this for the four weeks of Advent, Christmas Eve, and then actually the following week after um, to bring in the new year. And I'm titling this series, The Once and Future King, and you'll see a very clear and memorable image up on the screen. Uh, I had a teacher in college um, named Mark Sherman, and he was a testament to the power of great teachers. Uh, I went to an art school and he taught uh, the like required English classes that we had to take. And, you know, trying to corral a bunch of visual artists to read books, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea. And he was an incredible teacher. And so everybody said, you've got to take classes from Mark. Doesn't matter what it is, just take a class from Mark. And so I looked at what I needed to sign up for that winter to get my credits. And the thing on the list was a class called Arthurian Romance. Arthurian romance. I kind of guessed that it would have to do with King Arthur. I didn't quite know what I would be getting into, so I signed up. And I've always had like a love for fantasy, for legend, for folklore, and for storytelling. And gosh, this class just was incredible in the way that he was able to communicate the power of story. And in many ways, I think this class kind of laid some of the groundwork as a precursor for me to learn how to study the Bible. Because when he went through the way he taught Arthurian romance, it wasn't like, hey, plug in Disney's Sword of the Stone, and like that's the story, and we're just going to riff off that and have fun and read a bunch of pop fiction, right? It was like, let's read in Middle English, La Morte d'Arthur, and I like don't even know. I, I was literally like, I'm in way over my head. Like, I, I'm out. Like, I can't do this. The reading was awful. It was so difficult to parse out and understand what was going on. But as we read through these books from thousands of years ago forward into the more recent tales, you started to see the way that it all fit together. And something important with the King Arthur story is that it emphasizes something that's deeply, deeply true. Anytime you have a story that moves through thousands of years, like we have with the Bible, it emphasizes something that is just deeply, humanly true that you can connect with and say, yes, I, but not just I, but thousands of people, millions of people over thousands of years have identified with this universal truth, this deeply relatable truth. And in that kernel of that story, the beginning of the King Arthur story, if you remember what happens when that sword is sitting up in the stone, we have the story of an absence of a king. The beginning of The Once and Future King by T.H. White tells the story that was then translated into Disney's Sword in the Stone. And in this novel, um, it, it works off of the basic Arthurian legend which the premise is this, that Arthur was born to the high king of Britain, Uther Pendragon, and then is taken by Sir Ector to be secretly fostered in the countryside after the death of his father. Okay, so you have this kid who's an apparent orphan. He's called Wart in the Disney story, right? And it's actually Arthur disguised and taken away because of his father's death, I'm sure to protect the throne, right? And you have an empty throne, you have the absence of the king, and that empty throne is communicated visually in the central part of this first, first leg of the story, the sword and the stone, is sitting, waiting for the king to pull it out. It's a powerful image 
that communicates the absence of a king waiting for the right and true once and future king to pull that sword out of the stone. Who will be the worthy king that can wield that blade? Who will be the king worthy of ruling over the people? Who will be the good ruler? And what, what's interesting to find, I was listening to a bunch of history podcasts on the way home from my trip to Walla Walla, and, and I was just digging around. What can I find out about King Arthur? I'm super interested in this. And I was listening, and they said, actually, this story formed, right? This is a legend, a myth, and it formed over many, many years, and it was assembled out of different other ancient pieces of history and civilization. And so... In King Arthur, we find parts of Homer's Odyssey and Odysseus. In King Arthur, we find parts of Alexander the Great, all assembled. And you realize that there's something that people are yearning for in this story, something really deep, the need for a great king. All of our great hero narratives, now we see them mostly in Marvel superhero movies and Star Wars. We are pulled to the great hero narratives. Because we desire, we're looking for a leader, somebody with will, somebody with power that's worthy of following. In the absence of the king of this world, we're looking for some human king who will be worthy for us to follow. This would have been a story that would have been completely familiar to Daniel. Now, if you don't know the story of Daniel, Daniel was one of the prophets in exile. Israel had fallen completely. Israel is gone. It's divided into, at first it's fallen into civil war. It's divided north and south. That's the beginning, right? They can't even get along with themselves. Separates into two countries. And then the north falls, and then finally the south falls, and their young are taken off to be enslaved and enculturated into the city of Babylon and the nation and the empire of Babylon, which then becomes Persia. And Daniel is there as a true follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, Daniel has a vision And any time a prophet has a vision, heaven is reaching earth, right? When we pray on earth as it is in heaven, when we experience the life of Jesus, when a prophet sees a revelation from God, what's happening is heaven is intersecting with earth in the mind and the eyes and the tongue of that prophet. And so he's seeing this vision of heaven meeting earth, and in it there's four winds and four great beasts that represent this multitude of earthly kings, that represent these coming empires of great rulers. And what it shows among that is that there is no godly leader on earth at that time. Sitting up in the throne in a chariot with wheels of fire and just terror and awe is what what is called the Ancient of Days. And verse 9 reads this. As I looked, this is Daniel speaking, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. The Ancient of Days took his seat in this throne, but around it are empty thrones in this heavenly realm. And underneath is the chaos and the swarm of beasts and terror like the ocean swimming through. And the God of the universe is above it, but there is a problem around him are thrones that aren't filled. So Daniel is familiar with what this must mean, right? Daniel is living in a time like Arthur, like young Arthur with the death of the king. Who will be the next king of Israel? There's an absence of a king and he's looking and wondering and he sees those empty thrones and he's probably just moved with a great sense of the loss that Israel is feeling, the great sense of, oh, how I wish there were a king worth following, but no man on earth can seem to rise to the task. So Daniel knew, just like we know right now, that we 
desperately need a king. Our life, our movie watching, our story reading, along with thousands of people over thousands of generations, has been for this deep need for a king. It's as simple and true as a single mom who just wants a dad back in the picture. It's as simple and as true or as a dad and a mom who needs somebody to teach them how to parent their kids. We've all been there, right? We need a king. I don't know what to do. As a leader of this church, I need a king. I need a good king to help me know what to do next because sometimes I don't have a clue. In the population of Portland, we need a mayor. We need a king who can tackle homelessness. And it's as complex and as grand as in the nation of the United States of America. We need a president who can represent the good king. What we believe America stands for or what we yearn for and what we know God stands for and we, we wish would be the state of the nation and the kingdom. But to find that king, to begin our search for a good king, one who can pull the sword from the stone or sit on that empty throne, we need to go back, not where you might expect. I'm not going to take you there yet. We need to go all the way back, whether that's 6,000 years if you're a young earther or just millions of years, whatever. We're going all the way back to Genesis 1 to try and find the good king. And here we will find a good king. And we will also see the fall of a good king. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make Adam. Adam, which is the Hebrew word for human. Let us make mankind. Let us make Adam. In our image, after our likeness. Let us make one who shares the characteristics we have, who can be a representative of us. Now, if you study Genesis 1, there's kind of three major views. One is humans are, there's what they call the structural view. What are humans? Humans have free will, right? Humans have agency. What makes humans different than animals? Humans have the ability to reason, right? Whatever we want to apply, humans have a moral capacity, so we have that capacity of what is a human? What does it mean to be human? But then in Genesis, we find two things that you wouldn't be able to find just by existing and observing nature. Things that are spelled out in more of a revelation. We have a functional view. That is that humans have a function, right? And our function is not simply survival. Our function is to represent God. We have a divinely appointed function as mankind. This is the goal of our existence. This is the reason we are. And then there's a relational view, which we find if we look at Genesis 5, verse 3, where it says, Adam fathered a son in his likeness. We can take that same grammar and apply it backward because the writer was clearly using the same approach. And we can say, we have been fathered. We were created by a father. So there's a relational view. Humanity exists in relationship since the dawn of time. We are not alone. There is a great king, and we were made for relationship with him. 26, let's look, let's look for a second at these, these other two views. I'm not going to look at the reasoning and moral capacity. We're just going to look at the functional and relational view. The functional view. Let them have, I'm continuing at verse 26, let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay? Then... Humanity is also given the capacity to name the creatures, right? To know them. Not just to know them and not just to understand them, but to actually appoint sort of a wish for them. When we name a child, we think about what our hopes are for them. We call back ancestry and we move it forward with them. 
there's some kind of authority that humans hold, a wish that they ought to have that God's saying, I want you to have the same wish I have for these animals, for this earth, for this place. And he, 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 he puts that with the animals, but he also puts that with them. He says, multiply, be fruitful, make more of yourselves, have babies, govern in peace and do so across the whole planet. And then it says something interesting, because if you think of the Garden of Eden, you think, well, it's perfect. Manicured, perfect garden. It's just sort of maintained by God. His presence just sort of keeps all the leaves trimmed and everything, all the walls laid and however it's laid out, I don't know. And he says, and subdue it. What does that mean? It means that there's some part of our functional view in which we are to labor in a beautiful, peaceful, passionate, good, fulfilling way and to subdue the earth, to bring God's order across the earth in a way that only mankind can bring it. There is something that we see in this good king, Adam, who's created. That he is to be a responsible governor, responsible leader, respecting and shaping in the way that God has started in the garden to the holes of the earth by being fruitful and multiplying throughout and appointing new leaders. You get the picture. Another wording that's used that fits that same subdue language but has a different connotation is Genesis 2, 15 through 17. In 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, when I hear those words, I think like a hoe and a rake, right? Work it and keep it. That with, with some hard work comes responsibility. I think of all these things. I think of God saying, shape the world with me. But there's also a revelation of a deeper identity. And it pulls into the relational view, which is that we are there to keep God's order, that we are there to be in service to the Father, that we are to keep his truth and his law intact. And we'll get into this a little bit more in a minute. But this, this is in like stark contrast to other ancient Near East narratives of what it means to be human. In a lot of the surrounding cultures, people had hostile view towards their gods and they viewed that they were either subjugated by them. So that, that, put it this way, they were either totally subservient, right? They were imprisoned by the gods, by fate, right? So if the gods will it, I'm just at their disposal. I'm like a tool of the gods was one prevailing view. And the other view is that they're enslaved. They do the work so the gods don't have to. They're up there partying and we've got to do the hard work. And this, these were the prevailing culture. So we, this is not just like all humankind had this view. The faithful of God had a view of the true God that was starkly different than the surrounding cultures. And actually plays into the biblical narrative. We think of the Tower of Babel and we think of the way people began to rise up against God. Of course, the surrounding cultures would have that view. So we see the goodness of what Adam, of what Eve, of what these first humans held. But then we quickly see, as we know, that throne is empty. There's no humans on the throne next to God in the vision of Daniel in the ancient of days. What has happened? And we see the fall of the king. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. That brings us to Psalm 8, kind of in the heart of this story. Remember when Ellen read Psalm 8, I'll just kind of read through this and track with me in light of what we're reading. I'm going to stop and we'll talk about a few things. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. What? 
Why would they say through the praise of children and infants? Aren't we the good kings? Aren't we appointed with power? No, we fell. We fell hard. And it's all over our faces. It's written all over our hearts. We know that we are not worthy. Through the praise of children and infants, God, what we feel like we are, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of man, that you are mindful of them, or the son of man that you care for him? What is mankind that you are mindful of, or the son of man that you care for him? In light of the fall, in light of the fact that we're fallen kings, like we don't have, we're at your mercy. Who are we? We get that we are fallen kings in need of a good king. So you see how this psalm has to be written from the point of view of people who get what Adam did and how he fell from the throne and how he is no longer there. And we need, we need somebody worthy of getting on that throne. But God, I don't know who it will be. God, you are our stronghold. But then look at what David knows in this psalm. He says, what is mankind that you're mindful of, the son of man that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. And then he basically riffs on the Genesis narrative of what humankind is supposed to be. He goes, you have given us all of this and we know we have this responsibility, but we can't do it. We need your help. This dominion and this rule is set up in the core of what it means to represent God and the core of the function of God. And you have these two impressions of ourselves that are prevailing in Psalm 8. On one hand, humanity is so small. On one hand, humanity is so small. On the other hand, humanity is so great. We feel this every day. I have immense power in my marriage to destroy it. I have immense power to do good for it. I have immense power in forming my kids. I have immense power at my job. Human beings each carry so much dominion and strength. And yet I am completely lost and alone without God. We watch this show um, sometimes at night called Secrets of the Zoo. It's basically a procedural. It's like... um, those shows that they had on like Discovery Daytime where they do like a surgery for somebody. And the whole thing's like just super dramatized and the music's like dun, 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 dun. You know, what's gonna happen? They're going in there, wheeling them into the surgery. I'm really worried about him. You know, they do these cutaways. And it's like this, this whole fabricated thing. But they do it in the context of a zoo for kids and they operate on elephants or gorillas or whatever. And I'm just moved by the fact that when you've got like an intubator tube down a bat and its eyes are freaking out and its, you know, teeth are open and it's just kind of like completely at the mercy of the doctors. It doesn't understand their language. It has no clue what's happening to it, right? We have dominion. And we see a good dominion happening there. We see a responsibility and a care happening there, a tenderness. But we also know that humans can do the opposite. And of course, that's what Adam does here and Eve. And they, they fall, they take the fruit, they eat of it, their eyes are opened, and suddenly they realize they're naked. Now, what does that mean? It means exactly what we see in Psalm 8. Suddenly they realize that when they don't follow in the way of God, in the way of the great king, the ancient of days, they abdicate their throne and they're at the mercy of the great beasts. That they are no better than the great beasts. In fact, they're one of them because they just swim around in seas of chaos doing what they will. And their power only comes from the strength of God and following in his ways. It says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. This is Adam talking. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Rather than be the governors or the vice rulers or whatever you want to call the the assistants to God in their appointed role, Adam and Eve have decided to do what they think is right for them. What they think is best. What it really means when they take and eat is that they say, this is going to fill me up, not what God says. This thing is going to make me whole. This thing is what I need to be better. And it's when it's directly opposed to the will of God that we know we're sinning, that we know that we have abdicated the throne that he's given us and that we are a ruler that can no longer be trusted. The Lord God said in verse 22, behold, this man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree and life of eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Isn't it weird how that sentence isn't even finished? It's just interrupted. Therefore, doing the thinking, we can't have him in the garden anymore. This, this is not okay. Because mankind does not know how to wield the power that he has. And it will destroy and bring the earth into chaos. Rather than rule over it and subdue it, he will wreck the garden. He will wreck the goodness. It's totally relatable, this story. And it's completely true. And we know it deep, deep, deep in our heart. Every man and woman in this room is Adam and Eve. We are all like the first humans. And this is how we know. We, in all of our lives, we have built, we have gone what they call in World War II language, a bridge too far, right? You know, that, that terminology means this. Basically, there was a, I'll shorten the story. There, there was a, a campaign in Europe where generals basically thought they were hot, whatever. And they, they went out and they said, we're ne- no one can take us. We've got forces. We're, we're going to deploy and we're going to go. And they go straight into the Netherlands and they go a bridge too far. They're totally overcommitted. They're completely overwhelmed and they're overrun. We can't hold up what our aspirations have burdened us to carry. We are people that believe we are kings because God made us kings. But we can't hold up under that burden. We don't have the strength to carry it. So the aspirations and the ambitions that all of us have inside of ourselves for the life that we know is possible, those are good things. Sometimes I think we shut down people's passions and we try and make ourselves complacent. And we we try and basically shut down the kingliness and the queenliness of what we've been appointed by God. But those are good things. The problem is when we take it and we go into what's called hubris and we just say, I know the way. This is going to work because I say it's going to work. And we go a bridge too far, which is what Adam and Eve did when they took of the fruit. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They've also given up this guarding and the keeping. Okay, I talked about how we're going to get to this in a second. This is, this is the guarding and keeping of the law of God. So they've not just given up their kingly role to subdue and manage and do it well, but they've also given up obeying God's commandments. G.K. Beale writes this about what that means in the text. Man, far smarter than me. And he says, when these two words occur together later in the Old Testament, without exception, they have this meaning and refer either to Israelites serving and guarding 
or obeying God's word, about 10 times he says, or more often to priests who serve God in the temple and guard the temple from unclean things entering it. And then he goes on to show how Eden is temple-like. He says the temple in the Old Testament was the unique place of God's presence where Israel had to go to experience that presence. Israel's temple was the place where the priest experienced God's unique presence. And Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. The same Hebrew verb used for God's walking back and forth in the garden, also describes God's presence in the tabernacle. Okay, so here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say this. Adam and Eve, humanity, is created as kings, but we're also created as priests. And the Garden of Eden is the temple. Okay, so all of these things transfer forward over the biblical story, because in the New Testament, what do we find? In us is the temple, the spirit of God, right? We are kings and priests. We are appointed. But the only way you can be a priest, see, this is why the priestliness of us is a guard to the kingliness of us. The aspirations of kingliness will pull us a bridge too far. But the priestliness of us, the aspirations for that are to always be in the presence of God, to maintain that. So those two things hold each other in tension. And what do priests do? Priests abide in the words of Jesus, right? Abide in me. They live in and for and in the obedience to guard and keep the faith in the greatest king and the sacred father. And so what happens when they, when they leave the garden? We see how this all plays out. Genesis 3, 24, it says, and God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve were no longer fit guardians. They could no longer protect the temple and keep the commands and the way of God. So God appointed a cherubim, an angel. What a reminder that ought to be of our failure to be kings and priests. And where do those cherubim go with Israel? Where else do we see two cherubim that guard the presence of God? On the Ark of the Covenant. Those cherubim over the presence of God. In, within the Ark, what is in there? The law, the Ten Commandments. You see how all of this plays, just like those Arthurian stories I was talking about, they build on each other. The story of God is the kernel for all of that. It's, it works in the same function, except the difference is it's completely and utterly true. So we see how every time Israel would have gone with the ark, they're reminded. They're reminded in sort of a, a tough way, let's be honest, you blew it. But I'm with you. Follow me. Follow me in the fiery pillar. Follow me in the smoke. But beware, you are not fit to be kings and priests. I must appoint those. I must anoint those for you. So he appoints Moses, right? And Moses appoints Aaron. And there's an order prescribed to the people of God that we need to follow because we are fallen kings. In ancient myth, the Romans and the Greeks, I forget which, use the story of Prometheus, right? And Prometheus attempted to steal things from the gods for the humans, right? Or in some stories, he actually is the creator of humans in disobedience to the gods. But the Promethean story T. Wright talks about, he says, it's an attempt to usurp God's rule. Fall. Universal. We sense the gap in our souls. We sense how we're so close and yet so far from being able to be great kings. We sense it all around us in our culture right now. Look at all the top CEOs and you see people trying to bridge that gap. And when you look at it, you go, they're insane. And so am I, right? Like we can't do it. And so we just see more exaggerated and exaggerated versions. If you're having a trouble with this concept, think about this. The Victorian author Mary Shelley wrote the book Frankenstein, right? And contrary to popular belief, Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor who creates the monster, 
right? And she puts this subtitle. She calls it the modern Prometheus, right? So the doctor who creates Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus, trying to create something that mankind can't do. We simply cannot do it. And it's a reminder, of course, to know our limits. And in these stories, we always find the birth of pain, right? The birth of pain comes out of overextending ourselves. In the case of Adam and Eve, they did this classic adage, they bit the hand that feeds. So this is the story that we inherit as people of God from the people of Israel. We are fallen kings. And in some ways, what we have to now realize, okay, so John, you've taken me down. You do this every time. You take me down. You say, I'm no good. You say, I can't do it. So, okay, we have to realize that this is actually strangely positive, that this is where we begin to walk with God over and over and over and over in the biblical story. God brings Israel back down to earth whether it's down to a remnant of people, whether it's often exile like Daniel is. And he creates a deep sense of suffering and fear and loss. And he turns it and he goes, you don't realize, but you're closer than ever to truly seeing how to represent me, how to function as you're meant to be functioned and how to be in relationship with me. You're closer than ever and you're just in fits and rages upset at me, but you don't realize like we're right there. You're so close. We see this in its infancy, this idea in Genesis 4, 7. Remember, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel and God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door but you, and it depends on the translation, may or must, they're both true, rule over it. You may or must rule over it. This is the state that mankind is in. Sin is crouching at our door, but you may rule over it, but not you, you in me. You as the priest, you as the king under the great king. And so there's a great parallel here to the sword and the stone. Remember how Wart begins in the Disney story under the tutelage, under the training of Merlin to find how to be a great king, going through trials and rites of passage to discover what it means to lead. The orphan cannot be king yet. They must come of age before they can draw Excalibur from the stone and begin to be the ruler of the leaderless Britain and prove their birthright. But guess what? That person is not you or me, not yet. We have to go back to Daniel 7's crazy vision. We have to realize that time and time again, people thought that they were the one who could learn the right way, rediscover the Torah, whatever they do. All of these kings in Israel were trying to return to the way. And what happens? So close and yet so far. Solomon, right? Hezekiah. We have so many leaders who seemed like they were just so close. And then they fall. So Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, talks about this vision, and he says, Here we see in this vision that Daniel has the repainting of the Garden of Eden story, depicting the absentee human rulers and the fact that God doesn't want to have that post or that throne unfilled. So we're going to see how this transpires. How, how can there be a king that can pull the sword out of the stone? Where does that king come from? And so what we get to is the story of the whole Bible is the story of looking towards from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is a story of Israel looking for a savior, an anointed one, a Messiah. Okay, they need a divinely appointed king for Israel, one who would be in perfect alignment with the great king. They recognize the chaos of self-governance, but they can't do it themselves. So they're praying and they're yearning in a deep-seated hope. And this is where we get to the, our Advent story. The first week of Advent is the week of hope. We're going to light a candle 
for hope. And what we have to remember is that we are a people that absolutely the bedrock of who we are as sons and daughters of humanity, of the fall, for creatures of hope. Like this morning, that text came in to pray for our church, filled me with hope. And I simultaneously felt enlivened and ashamed. Enlivened because somebody cares about us. Ashamed because I ought to be able to do that on my own. I ought to have what that text sent me from Jesus. Right? But it reminded me of this deep bedrock of our faith, which is that we have the hope. We have it surely as that text came in. I had it before that. It was available in my deepest, darkest hour. I was the closest to it because I realized that I need a king. I need someone to redeem me. And we see that all along, this is actually the plan of God. So if you go back to Genesis, I know we're jumping around a little bit. Go back to Genesis 3.15, we get this promise. Speaking to the serpent after everything's gone down, God says of mankind, he says, mankind shall bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. What's God saying there to the, the devil, to the serpent? You can bite humanity all you want, but I promise I'll get mankind to step on your head. I promise you. A man will come and step on your head. I get the last say. So go ahead. Bite their heels. Just you. That's the story that's happening in Genesis 3. And so in Daniel's vision, it continues and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Remember that from Psalm 8. Who is the son of man? That you care for That's talking about humanity. He says, I saw someone who looked like mankind, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the messianic hope of Israel. That's the hope that we have. There is an ultimate goal for humanity, and it is reachable through one man, through the ultimate man. So can, in Adam's failing, can humans fulfill God's command? It is possible for one. What will that Savior King do? All throughout the Old Testament, I've been reading through it for my class, just like gobs of Old Testament. I mean, just like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've got to read that much by next class. And over and over, you start to pick out themes. And one theme that I've been picking out as I've been reading through the Psalms is that the Psalms cry out for God to atone for the sins of the people. For God to atone for the sins of the people. They realize there is no man worthy there is no man that actually represents the high king. God, we need you to do it. We're just at your mercy, remember? And so what Genesis 3.15 tells us is that some human will stand in the gap as fully man and fully God and create a pathway of victory over the serpent. You see how we start to put these puzzle pieces together? Suddenly Jesus doesn't seem like just a weird made up idea. Like how does that work? Suddenly we see how it all fits together. And that fully man, fully God, Messiah will bring resurrection to our dead lives. So in Christianity, right, we call ourselves Christians, which means we are followers of Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So what we actually are is we are Messiahans. We are people who follow the Messiah. We are people in hope of a savior. 
It's just fundamental to our name. Every day we live, we are a tribe put together. We are a people gathered in community around hope for someone to save us. We don't hope that the church will save the church. We don't hope that the government will save the church. We don't, we don't hope for anything but the Messiah to save not just the church, but all of mankind. And so who will do that? Who will be the once and future king? Jesus. And of course, he calls himself over and over and over in the New Testament. Not the Messiah, the Son of Man. The capital S, capital M, Son of Man. The ultimate, the ideal, the good king who shows that there is redemption for the fabric, for the biology, for the soul makeup, for the core design of humanity. It's not a broken design. It can be done. And he, out of his love for us, stands in the gap for us. And the way he does it is that his throne, the throne that he goes up and takes in that vision, the empty throne next to the Ancient of Days, will be a cross. That the throne that the best king will take looks like a cross. I just was looking at that image this morning and I go, oh, it's a cross shape. Ever since the beginning, God has planned to rule with mankind. And Jesus shows us that this mysterious Trinitarian God is a God of promise. That he has a plan and it's part of the fundamental design and the fundamental part of this design. And this is the crazy part for me and then I'll wrap up. The crazy part for me, I grew up thinking that like I'm sort of ancillary, I'm sort of unnecessary to the plan. I mean, I'm saved by Jesus, I'm thankful for that, but there's no real use for me once I'm saved, right? Like it's, I have sort of a passive part of the story. I, I observe the biblical story, I go, I'd like to live forever, can I get that ticket? Tell me what I need to do, right? To get on that train to go live forever, because I just don't want to die. Right. And then in heaven, it's a very obscure sense of what I'm going to do. I, I guess I just don't get to die. That's nice. It's better than dying. Right. It's incredibly passive and totally uncompelling. Right. What better view than the biblical view, which shows that we're appointed originally to be governors and family. And there will be a purpose for us. And actually, we are part of the Trinitarian design that operates out of community. Just like, okay, in the United States, the vice president and the Senate are functional. The president needs them to get stuff done. But they're also representative of what a republic is. We all get to participate in this thing. So as you multiply that out to govern a nation, you just keep emanating, you keep rippling out that same core idea. This is what the Trinity does. It's emanating out this idea. And God is calling us to participate in alignment with the sacred king. It got me. It, it, I don't know. It's changed the way I think about what I'm meant to live for, where I'm going. I'm not just making this up. Daniel 7, verse 27 this is in that same vision. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Wait, the kingdom and dominion that's ruled by the Son of one like the Son of Man will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, to Arthur, to Ron, to Beth, like we'll be, we will be kings and queens one day? Incredible, unbelievable. I'm not worthy, I can't do it. That's why we need Jesus.
finish out with this quote and just a short what this means for us. N.T. Wright writes this and just has a great book on the Psalms, which is where I'm diving in and where a lot of this sermon's coming from. He says, God created the world in such a way that it was to be looked after by humans who reflect his image. When the humans rebelled, he did not rescind that project. Instead, he called a human family in order that they might reflect not simply his wise ordering and stewardship into the world, but now also his rescuing love into that same world, disastrously flawed as it now was. Here is the agony and the ecstasy of the Old Testament, the rich, breathtaking vocation of Israel and the dark, tragic nature of that this vocation, this rescue mission, was to be undertaken by people who were themselves in sore need of the very same rescue. So what we do as Christians is we exercise. First of all, we recognize that we are the beacon. We are the earthly kings that Jesus, that God has appointed and called into his open arms. And then we have to exercise this daily soul-turning act of seeing that, of admitting that, admitting I'm a fallen king, of remembering the good king under the great king, reaffirming in word and deed Jesus of Nazareth's counterintuitive, cross-shaped life is the best life. And it is the reason that we were created to exist. Amelia, I was playing chess with her this over the weekend. And she goes, I don't remember this. She goes, remember, Dad, I, we were setting up the board and she couldn't remember how to remember it, how to, how to set it all up. She goes, oh, she goes, no, I remember. She goes, I remember you told me the placement of the bishop is next to the king because the bishop's like the preacher and every king needs God. That's the core kernel. That's it. That's what it means to be a good king. Every king needs God. So let's remember that this week. Let's be people of hope. And let's look forward to this Advent season as not just a gift to us as a church, but that we are called from this week forward to serve in good rule of our families, our marriages, our workplaces, and our relationships in Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, um, you reminded me of hope today. And I pray that for each person here that you would remind us. Uh, it's not about can we do it or not. It's about the fact that you've sent someone to do it. You've sent a good ruler who is reigning and who has promised his return. Amen.